Welcome to Another World Audiobooks. If you're confused as to why there's an episode today, it's because we have the generosity of Nikki Wagner to thank for a very special bonus full week of content here as we go through The Secret Garden. If you didn't listen to Sunday's episode, I had uh, an interview with Nikki and uh, there was the first couple chapters of the book. So go back, listen to that and uh, get all caught up on what's going on. If you're all confused and wondering where Emma went, never fear, she will be back regularly scheduled uh, episode on this coming Sunday. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, all this crazy bonus content is like Christmas came early. Without further ado, I give you the next chapters of The Secret Garden, narrated by special guest narrator, Nikki Wagner. Chapter 21, Ben Weatherstaff. One of the strange things about living in the world is that it is only now and then one is quite sure one is going to live forever and ever and ever. One knows it sometimes when it gets one up at the tender solemn dawn time and goes out and stands alone and throws one's head far back and looks up and up and watches the pale sky slowly changing and flushing and marvellous unknown things happening until the east almost makes one cry out and one's heart stands still at the strange unchanging majesty of the rising of the sun which has been happening every morning for thousands and thousands and thousands of years one knows it then for a moment or so and one knows it sometimes when one stands by oneself in a wood at sunset and the mysterious deep gold stillness slanting through and under the branches seems to be saying slowly again and again something one cannot quite hear however much one tries then sometimes the immense quiet of the dark blue at night with millions of stars waiting and watching makes one sure and sometimes a sound of far-off music makes it true and sometimes a look in someone's eyes and it was like that with colin when he first saw and heard and felt the springtime inside the four high walls of the hidden garden that afternoon the whole world seemed to devote itself to being perfect and radiantly beautiful and kind to one boy perhaps out of pure heavenly goodness the spring came and crowned everything it possibly could into that one place more than once dickon paused in what he was doing and stood still with a sort of growing wonder in his eyes shaking his head softly eh it is greatly he said i'm twelve going on thirteen and there's a lot of afternoons in thirteen years but seems to me like i never sees one as greatly as this here aye it is a greatly one said mary and she sighed with near joy i'll want it's the greatest one one ever was in the world dost thou think said colin with dreamy carefulness as happen it was made like this ere all a purpose of me my word cried mary admiringly that there is a bit of good yorkshire that ship and first rate that that and delight reigned they drew the chair under the plum tree which was snow-white with blossom and musical with bees it was like a king's canopy a fairy king's there were flowering cherry trees near and apple trees whose buds were pink and white and here and there one had burst open wide 
Between the blossoming branches of the canopy bits of blue sky looked down like wonderful eyes. Mary and Dickon worked a little here and there, and Colin watched them. They brought him things to look at. Buds which were opening, buds which were tight closed, bits of twig whose leaves were just showing green. The feather of a woodpecker which had dropped in the grass. The empty shell of some bird early hatched. Dickon pushed the chair slowly round and round the garden, stopping every other moment to let him look at the wonders springing out of the earth or trailing down the trees. It was like being taken in state round the country of a magic king and queen and shown all the mysterious riches it contained. I wonder if we shall see the robin, said Colin. Val see him often now after a bit, answered Dickon. With the eggs hatches and the little chap, he'll be kept so busy it'll make his head swim. Val see him flying backward and forward, carrying worms nigh as big as himself, and that much noise going on in the nest when he gets there as fear flusters him, so as he scarce knows which big mouth to drop the first piece in, and gaping beaks and squawks on every side. Mother says us when she sees the work a robin has to keep them gaping beaks filled, she feels like she was a lady with nothing to do. She says she's seen the little chaps when she seemed like the sweat must be dropping off them. No, though folk can't see it. This made them giggle so delightedly that they were obliged to cover their mouths with their hands, remembering that they must not be heard. Colin had been instructed as to the law of whispers and low voices several days before. He liked the mysteriousness of it and did his best, but in the midst of excited enjoyment, it is rather difficult never to laugh above a whisper. Every moment of the afternoon was full of new things, and every hour the sunshine grew more golden. The wheeled chair had been drawn back under the canopy, and Dickon had sat down on the grass and had just drawn out his pipe when Colin saw something he had not had time to notice before. That's a very old tree over there, isn't it? he said. Dickon looked across the grass at the tree, and Mary looked, and there was a brief moment of stillness. Yes, answered Dickon, after it, and his low voice had a very gentle sound. Mary gazed at the tree and thought, The branches are quite grey, and there's not a single leaf anywhere, Colin went on. It's quite dead, isn't it? Eh? admitted Dickon. But them roses as has claimed all over it will near hide every bit of their dead wood when they're full of leaves and flowers. It won't look dead then. It'll be the prettiest of all. Mary still gazed at the tree and thought. It looks as if a big branch had been broken off, said Colin. I wonder how it was done. It's been done many a year, answered Dickon. Eh? with a sudden relieved start and laying his hands on Colin. Look at that robin! There he is! He's been foraging for his mate! Colin was almost too late, but he just caught sight of him. The flush of red-breasted bird with something in its beak. He darted through the greenness and into the close-grown corner and was out of sight. Colin leaned back on his cushion again, laughing a little. He's taking his tea to her. Perhaps it's five o'clock. I think I'd like some tea myself. And so they were safe. It was magic which sent the robin, said Mary secretly to Dickon afterward. I know it was magic. 
For both she and Dickon had been afraid Colin might ask something about the tree whose branch had broken off ten years ago, and they had talked it over together, and Dickon had stood and rubbed his head in a troubled way. We mum look as if it wasn't no different from the other trees, he had said. We could never tell him how it broke, poor lad. If he says anything about it, we mum try to look cheerful. Aye, that we mum, had answered Mary, but she had not felt as if she looked cheerful when she gazed at the tree. She wondered and wondered in those few moments if there was any reality in the other thing Dickon had said. He had gone on rubbing his rust-red hair in a puzzled way, but a nice, comforted look had begun to grow in his blue eyes. Mrs. Craven was a very lovely young lady. He had gone on rather hesitatingly. And Mother, she thinks maybe she's about Misselwit many a time looking after Mr. Cullen. Same as all mothers do when they took out to the world. They have to come back, that sees. Harpen she's been in the garden, and Harpen it was her set us to work, and told us to bring him here. Mary had thought he meant something about magic. She was a great believer in magic. Secretly, she quite believed that Dickon worked magic. Of course, good magic. On everything near him, and that was why people liked him so much, and wild creatures knew he was their friend. She wondered, indeed, if it were not possible that his gift had brought the robin just at the right moment when Colin asked that dangerous question. She felt that his magic was working all the afternoon and making Colin look like an entirely different boy. It did not seem possible that he could be the crazy creature who had screamed and beaten and bitten his pillow. Even his ivory whiteness seemed to change. The faint glow of colour which had shone on his face and neck and hands when he first got inside the garden really never quite died away. He looked as if he were made of flesh instead of ivory or wax. They saw the robin carry food to his mate two or three times, and it was so suggestive of afternoon tea that Colin felt they must have some. Go and make one of the manservants bring some in a basket to the rhododendron walk, he said, and then you and Dickon can bring it here. It was an agreeable idea, easily carried out, and when the white cloth was spread upon the grass with hot tea and buttered toast and crumpets, a delightfully hungry meal was eaten, and several birds on domestic errands paused to inquire what was going on, and were led into investigating crumbs with great activity. Nut and shell whisked up trees with pieces of cake, and Soot took the entire half of a buttered crumpet into a corner, and pecked at and examined and turned it over, and made hoarse remarks about it, until he decided to swallow it all joyfully in one gulp. The afternoon was dragging toward its mellow hour. The sun was deepening the gold of its lances. The bees were going home, and the birds were flying past less often. Dickon and Mary were sitting on the grass. The tea basket was repacked ready to be taken back to the house, and Colin was lying against his cushions with his heavy locks pushed back from his forehead. And Colin was lying against his cushions with his heavy locks pushed back from his forehead, and his face looking quite a natural colour. I don't want this afternoon to go, he said, but I shall come back tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after. You'll get plenty of fresh air, won't you? said Mary. I'm going to get nothing else, he answered. I've seen the spring now, and I'm going to see the summer. I'm going to see everything grow here. 
I'm going to grow him myself. That thou will, said Dickon. Also have thee walking about and digging some as other folk afore long. Colin flushed tremendously. Walk, he said. Dig? Shall I? Dickens glanced at him was delicately cautious. Neither he nor Mary had ever asked if anything was the matter with his legs. For sure thou will, he said stoutly. Thou's got legs of thine own, same as other folks. Mary was rather frightened until she heard Colin's answer. Nothing really ails them, he said, but they are so thin and weak. They shake so that I am afraid to try to stand on them. Both Mary and Dickon drew a relieved breath. When thou stops being afraid, thou stand on them, Dickon said with renewed cheer, and thou stop being afraid in a bit. I shall, said Colin, and he lay still as if he were wondering about things. They were really very quiet for a little while. The sun was dropping lower. It was that hour when everything stills itself, and they really had a busy and exciting afternoon. Colin looked as if he were rusting luxuriously. Even the creatures had ceased moving about and had drawn together and were resting near them. Soot had perched on a low branch and drawn up one leg and dropped the grey film drowsily over his eyes. Mary privately thought he looked as if he might snore in a minute. In the midst of this stillness, it was rather startling when Colin half lifted his head and exclaimed in a loud, suddenly alarmed whisper, Who is that man? Dickon and Mary scrambled to their feet. Man? They both cried in low, quick voices. Colin pointed to the high wall. Look, he whispered excitedly. Just look. Mary and Dickon wheeled about and looked. There was Ben Weatherstaff's indignant face glaring at them over the wall from the top of a ladder. He actually shook his fist at Mary. If thou wasn't a bachelor and thou was a wench of mine, he cried, I'd give thee a hiding. He mounted another step threateningly, as if it were his energetic intention to jump down and deal with her. But as she came toward him, he evidently thought better of it and stood on the top shelf of his ladder, shaking his fist down at her. I never thought much of thee, he harangued. I couldn't abide thee the first time I set eyes on thee. A scrawny buttermilk-faced young bism, always asking questions and poking thy nose where I wasn't wanted. I never knowed how that got so thick with me. If it hadn't been for the robin, drat him. Ben Weatherstaff, called out Mary, finding her breath. She stood below him and called up to him with a sort of gasp. Ben Weatherstaff, it was the robin who showed me the way. Then it did seem as if Ben really would scramble down on her side of the wall, he was so outraged. Bah, young Baden, he called down at her. Laying the badness on a robin, not but while he's impotent and now for anything. Him sure near way. Him! Eh, thou young knot. She could see his next words burst out because he was overpowered by curiosity. How ever in the world did thou get in? It was the robin who showed me the way, she protested obstinately. He didn't know he was doing it, but he did. And I can't tell you from here while you're shaking your fist at me. He stopped shaking his fist very suddenly at that very moment, and his jaw actually dropped, and he stared over her head at something he saw coming over the grass toward him. 
At the first sound of his torrent of words, Colin had been so surprised that he only sat up and listened as if he were spellbound. But in the midst of it, he had recovered himself and beckoned imperiously to Dickon. Wheel me over there, he commanded. Wheel me quite close and stop right in front of him. And this, if you please, this is what Ben Weatherstaff beheld and which made his jaw drop. A wheeled chair with luxurious cushions and robes which came toward him, looking rather like some sort of state coach, because a young Raja leaned back in it with royal command in his great black-rimmed eyes, and a thin white hand extended haughtily toward him. And it stopped right under Ben Weatherstaff's nose. It was really no wonder his mouth dropped open. "'Do you know who I am?' demanded the Raja. How Ben Weatherstaff stared! His red old eyes fixed themselves on what was before him as if he were seeing a ghost. He gazed and gazed and gulped a lump down his throat and did not say a word. Do you know who I am? demanded Colin, still more imperiously. Answer! Ben Weatherstaff put his gnarled hand up and passed it over his eyes and over his forehead, and then he did answer in a queer, shaky voice. Who thou he said. Aye, that I do. Weep thou mother's eyes staring at me and out of thy face. Lord knows how thou come here, but that art the poor cripple. Colin forgot that he had ever had a back. His face flushed scarlet, and he sat bolt upright. I'm not a cripple, he cried up furiously. I'm not. He's not, cried Mary almost shouting up the wall in her fierce indignation. He's not got a lump as big as a pin. I looked, and there was none there. Not one. Ben Weatherstaff passed his hand over his forehead again and gazed as if he could never gaze enough. His hand shook, and his mouth shook, and his voice shook. It was an ignorant old man and a tactless old man, and he could only remember the things he had heard. That... That hasn't got a crooked back, he said hoarsely. No, shouted Colin. That, that hasn't got crooked legs, quavered Ben more hoarsely yet. It was too much. The strength which Colin usually threw into his tantrums rushed through him now in a new way. Never yet had he been accused of crooked legs even in whispers, and the perfectly simple belief in their existence, which was revealed by Ben Weatherstaff's voice, was more than Raja flesh and blood could endure. His anger and insulted pride made him forget everything but this one moment, and filled him with a power he had never known before, an almost unnatural strength. "'Come here!' he shouted to Dickon, and he actually began to tear the coverings off his lower limbs and disentangle himself. Come here! Come here! This minute! Dickon was by his side in a second. Mary caught her breath in a short gasp and felt herself turn pale. He can do it! He can do it! He can do it! He can! She garbled over to herself under her breath as fast as ever she could. There was a brief, fierce scramble. The rugs were tossed on the ground. Dickon had Colin's arms. The thin legs were out. The thin feet were on the grass. Colin was standing upright, upright, as straight as an arrow, and looking strangely tall. 
his head thrown back and his strange eyes flashing lightning. Look at me, he flung up at Ben Weatherstaff. Just look at me, you, just look at me. He's as straight as I am, cried Dickon. He's as straight as any lad in Yorkshire. What Ben Weatherstaff did, Mary thought queer beyond measure. He choked and gulped, and suddenly tears ran down his weather-wrinkled cheeks, and he struck his old hands together. Eh, he burst forth, the lies, Forkstail, thou'rt as thin as a lath and as white as a wraith, but there's not a knob on thee. Thou'lt make a mon yet, God bless thee. Dickon held Colin's arm strongly, but the boy had not begun to falter. He stood straighter and straighter and looked Ben Weatherstaff in the face. I'm your master, he said, when my father is away, and you are to obey me. This is my garden. Don't dare to say a word about it. You get down from that ladder and go out to the long walk, and Miss Mary will meet you and bring you here. I want to talk to you. We did not want you, but now you will have to be in the secret. Be quick. Ben Weatherstaff's crabbed old face was still wet with that one queer rush of tears. It seemed as if he could not take his eyes from the thin, straight Colin standing on his feet with his head thrown back. Eh, my lad. And then, remembering himself, he suddenly touched his hat gardener fashion and said, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And obediently disappeared as he descended the ladder. Chapter 22 When the Sun Went Down When his head was out of sight, Colin turned to Mary. Go and meet him, he said, and Mary flew across the grass to the door under the ivy. Dickon was watching him with sharp eyes. There were scarlet spots on his cheeks, and he looked amazing, but he showed no signs of falling. I can stand, he said and his head was still held up, and he said it quite grandly. "'I told thee that could, as soon as thou stopped being afraid,' answered Dickon, "'and thou stopped.' "'Yes, I've stopped,' said Colin. Then suddenly he remembered something Mary had said. "'Are you making magic?' he asked sharply. Dickon's curly mouth spread in a cheerful grin. "'Thou's doing magic thyself.' he said, it's same magic as made these air walk out to the earth. And he touched with his thick boot a clump of crocuses in the grass. Colin looked up at them. Aye, he said slowly. There couldn't be bigger magic than that there. That couldn't be. He drew himself up straighter than ever. I'm going to walk to that tree, he said, pointing to one a few feet away from him. I'm going to be standing when Weatherstaff comes here. I can rest against the tree if I like. When I want to sit down, I will sit down, but not before. Bring a rug from the chair. He walked to the tree, and though Dickon held his arms, he was wonderfully steady. When he stood against the tree trunk, it was not too plain that he supported himself against it, and he still held himself so straight that he looked tall. When Ben Weatherstaff came through the door in the wall, he saw him standing there, and he heard Mary muttering something under her breath. "'What art saying?' he asked rather testily, 
because he did not want his attention distracted from the long, thin, straight boy figure and proud face. But she did not tell him. What she was saying was this. You can do it. You can do it. I told you you could. You can do it. You can do it. You can. She was saying it to Colin because she wanted to make magic and keep him on his feet looking like that. She could not bear that he should give in before Ben Weatherstaff. He did not give in. She was uplifted by a sudden feeling that he looked quite beautiful in spite of his thinness. He fixed his eyes on Ben Weatherstaff in his funny, imperious way. Look at me, he commanded. Look at me all over. Am I a hunchback? Have I got crooked legs? Ben Weatherstaff had not quite got over his emotion, but he had recovered a little and answered almost in his usual way. Not that, he said. Not of the sort. What's that been doing with thyself? Hiding out of sight and letting folk think that was crippled and half-witted? Half-witted, said Colin angrily. Who thought that? Lots of fools, said Ben. The world's full of jackasses braying and they never bray naught but lies. What did thou shut thyself up for? Everyone thought I was going to die, said Colin shortly. I'm not. And he said it with such decision, Ben Weatherstaff looked him over, up and down, down and up. Thou die, he said with dry exultation. Not of that sort. Thou's got too much pluck in thee. When I see thee put thy legs on the ground in such a hurry, I knowed that was all right. Sit thee down on the rug a bit, young mister, and give me thy orders. There was a queer mixture of crabbed tenderness and shrewd understanding in his manner. Mary had poured out speech as rapidly as she could, and they had come down the long walk. The chief thing to be remembered, she told him, was that Colin was getting well. Getting well. The garden was doing it. No one must let him remember about having humps and dying. The Raja condescended to seat himself on a rug under the tree. What work do you do in the gardens, Weatherstaff? he inquired. Anything I'm told to do, answered old Ben. I'm kept on by favour, because she liked me. She, said Colin. Thy mother, answered Ben Weatherstaff. My mother? said Colin, and he looked about him quietly. This was her garden, wasn't it? Aye, it was that. And Ben Weatherstaff looked about him, too. She were main fond of it. It is my garden now. I am fond of it. I shall come here every day, announced Colin. But it is to be a secret. My orders are that no one is to know that we come here. Dickon and my cousin have worked and made it come alive. I shall send for you sometimes to help, but you must come when no one can see you. Ben Weatherstaff's face twisted itself into a dry old smile. I've come here before when no one saw me, he said. What? exclaimed Colin. When? The last time I was here. Rubbing his chin and looking round. Was about two years ago. But no one has been in it for ten years, cried Colin. There was no door. I'm no one, said old Ben dryly. And I didn't come through the door. I come over the wall. 
The rheumatics held me back the last two year. Thou come and did a bit of pronin, cried Dickon. I couldn't make out how it had been done. Well, she was so fond of it, she was, said Ben Weatherstaff slowly. And she was such a pretty young thing. She says to me once, Ben, says she laughing, if ever I'm ill or if I go away, you must take care of my roses. When she did go away, the orders was no one was ever to come night. But I come, with grumpy obstinacy, over the wall I come, until the rheumatic stopped me, and I did a bit of work once a year. She gave her order first. It wouldn't have been as wick as it is if thou hadn't done it, said Dickon. I did wonder. I'm glad you did it, Weatherstaff, said Colin. You'll know how to keep the secret. Ah, I'll know, sir, answered Ben. And it'll be easier for a man with rheumatics to come in at the door. On the grass near the tree, Mary had dropped her trowel. Colin stretched out his hand and took it up. An odd expression came into his face, and he began to scratch the earth. His thin hand was weak enough, but presently, as they watched him, Mary had quite breathless interest. He drove the end of the trowel into the soil and turned some over. You can do it, you can do it," said Mary to herself. "I tell you, you can." Dickens' round eyes were full of eager curiousness, but he said not a word. Ben Weatherstaff looked on with an interested face. Colin persevered. After he had turned a few trowelfuls of soil, he spoke exultantly to Dickon in his best Yorkshire. "Thou said as thou did have me walking about here same as other folk, and thou said thou'd have me diggin. I thought that was just lean to please me. This is only the first day, and I've walked, and here I am diggin." Ben Weatherstaff's mouth fell open again when he heard him, but he ended by chuckling. <laughs> he said, "That sounds as if that got wits now. That's a Yorkshire lad for sure, and that diggin too. How'd they like to plant a bit of something? I can get the rose in a pot." Go and get it," said Colin, digging excitedly. "Quick, quick!" It was done quickly enough, indeed. Then Weatherstaff went his way, forgetting rheumatics. Dickon took his spade and dug the hole deeper and wider than a new digger with thin white hands could make it. Mary slipped out to run and bring back a watering can. When Dickon had deepened the hole, Colin went on turning the soft earth over and over. He looked up at the sky, flushed and glowing with a strange new exercise. Slight as it was, I want to do it before the sun goes quite down," he said. Mary thought that perhaps the sun held back a few minutes just on purpose. Ben Weatherstaff brought the rose in its pot from the greenhouse. He hobbled over the grass as fast as he could. He had begun to be excited too. He knelt down by the hole and broke the pot from the mould. "Here, lad," he said. Handing the plant to Colin, set it in the earth thyself, same as the king does when he goes to a new place. The thin white hand shook a little, and Colin's face grew deeper as he set the rose in the mould and held it, while old Ben made firm the earth. It was filled in and pressed down, 
and made steady. Mary was leaning forward on her hands and knees. Soot had flown down and marched forward to see what was being done. Nut and Shell chattered about it from a cherry tree. It's planted, said Colin at last, and the sun is only slipping over the edge. Help me up, Dickon. I want to be standing when it goes. That's part of the magic. And Dickon helped him, and the magic, whatever it was, so gave him strength that when the sun did slip over the edge and end the strange and lovely afternoon for them there, he actually stood on his two feet, laughing. Chapter Twenty Three, Magic. Doctor Craven had been waiting some time at the house when they returned to it. He had indeed begun to wonder if it might not be wise to send someone out to explore the garden paths. When Colin was brought back to his room, the poor man looked him over seriously. "You should not have stayed so long," he said. "You must not overexert yourself." "I am not tired at all," said Colin. "It has made me well. Tomorrow I am going out in the morning as well as in the afternoon." I am not sure that I can allow it," answered Doctor Craven. "I am afraid it would not be wise. It would not be wise to try to stop me," said Colin quite seriously. "I am going." Even Mary had found out that one of Colin's chief peculiarities was that he did not know in the least what a rude little brute he was with his way of ordering people about. He had lived on a sort of desert island all his life, and as he had been the king of it, he had made his own manners, and had had no one to compare himself with. Mary had indeed been rather like him herself, and since she had been at Misselwhite, had gradually discovered that her own manners had not been of the kind which is usual, or popular. Having made this discovery, she naturally thought it of enough interest to communicate to Colin. So. She sat and looked at him curiously for a few minutes after Doctor Craven had gone. She wanted to make him ask her why she was doing it, and of course she did. "What are you looking at me for?" he said. "I'm thinking that I am rather sorry for Doctor Craven." "So am I," said Colin calmly, but not without an air of some satisfaction. He won't get misselweight at all now that I'm not going to die. I'm sorry for him because of that, of course," said Mary. "But I was thinking just then that it must have been very horrid to have had to be polite for ten years to a boy who was always rude. I would never have done it. Am I rude?" Colin inquired undisturbedly. "If you had been his own boy and he had been a slapping sort of man," said Mary, "he would have slapped you." But he daren't," said Colin. "No, he daren't," answered Mistress Mary, thinking the thing out quite without prejudice. "Nobody ever dared to do anything you didn't like, because you were going to die and things like that. You were such a poor thing." "But," announced Colin stubbornly, "I am not going to be a poor thing. I won't let people think I'm one. I stood on my feet this afternoon." It is always having your own way that has made you so queer," Mary went on, thinking aloud. Colin turned his head, frowning. 
Am I queer? he demanded. Yes, answered Mary. Very. But you needn't be cross, she added impartially, because so am I queer, and so is Ben Weatherstaff. But I am not as queer as I was before I began to like people, and before I found the garden. I don't want to be queer, said Colin. I am not going to be, and he frowned again with determination. He was a very proud boy. He lay thinking for a while, and then Murray saw his beautiful smile begin and gradually change his whole face. I shall stop being queer, he said. If I go every day to the garden, there is magic in there. Good magic, you know, Mary. I am sure there is. So am I, said Mary. Even if it isn't real magic, Colin said, we can pretend it is. Something is there. Something. It's magic, said Mary, but not black. It's as white as snow. They always called it magic. And indeed, it seemed like it in the months that followed the wonderful months, the radiant months, the amazing ones. Oh, the things which happened in that garden. If you had never had a garden, you cannot understand. And if you have had a garden, you will know that it would take a whole book to describe all that came to pass there. At first, it seemed that green things would never cease pushing their way through the earth and the grass, in the beds, even in the crevices of the walls. Then the green things began to show buds, and the buds began to unfurl and show colour, every shade of blue, every shade of purple, every tint and hue of crimson. In its happy days, flowers had been tucked away into every inch and hole and corner. Ben Weatherstaff had seen it done, and had himself scraped out mortar from between the bricks of the wall, and made pockets of earth for lovely clinging things to grow on. Irises and white lilies rose out of the grass in sheaves, and the green alcoves filled themselves with amazing armies of blue and white flower lances of tall delphiniums, or columbines, or campanulas. She was main fond of em, she was, Ben Weatherstaff said. She liked them things and was always pointing up the blue sky, she used to tell. Not as she was one of them as looked down on the earth. Not her. She just loved it, but she said as the blue sky always looked so joyful. The seeds Dickon and Mary had planted grew as if fairies had tended them. Satiny poppies of all tints danced in the breeze by the school, gaily defying flowers which had lived in the garden for years and which it might be confessed seemed rather to wonder how such new people had got there and the roses the roses rising out of the grass tangled round the sundial wreathing the tree trunks and hanging from their branches climbing up the walls and spreading over them with long garlands falling in cascades they came alive day by day hour by hour fair fresh leaves and buds and buds tiny at first but swelling and working magic until they burst and uncurled into cups of scent delicately spilling themselves over their brims and filling the garden air colin saw it all watching each change as it took place every morning he was brought out and every hour of each day when it didn't rain he spent in the garden even grey days pleased him he would lie on the grass watching things growing he said 
If you watched long enough, he declared, you could see buds unsheathe themselves. Also, you could make the acquaintance of strange busy insect things running about on various unknown but evidently serious errands, sometimes carrying tiny scraps of straw, or feather, or food, or climbing blades of grass, as if they were trees from whose tops one could look out to explore the country. A mole throwing up its mound at the end of its burrow, and making its way out at last with the long-nailed paws which looked so like elfish hands, had absorbed him one whole morning. Ants' ways, beetles' ways, bees' ways, frogs' ways, birds' ways, plants' ways, gave him a new world to explore, and when Dickon revealed them all and added foxes' ways, otters' ways, ferrets' ways, squirrels' ways, and trout and water rats and badgers' ways. There was no end to the things to talk about and think over, and this was not the half of the magic. The fact that he had really once stood on his feet had set Colin thinking tremendously, and when Mary told him of the spell she had worked, he was excited and approved of it greatly. He talked of it constantly. Of course there must be lots of magic in the world, he said wisely one day, but people don't know what it is like. Or how to make it. Perhaps the beginning is just to say nice things are going to happen until you make them happen. I am going to try an experiment. The next morning, when they went to the secret garden, he sent at once for Ben Weatherstaff. Ben came as quickly as he could and found the Rajah sitting on his feet under a tree and looking very grand but also very beautifully smiling. Good morning, Ben Weatherstaff, he said. I want you and Dickon and Miss Murray to stand in a row and listen to me, because I am going to tell you something very important. Aye, aye, sir, answered Ben Weatherstaff, touching his forehead. One of the long concealed charms of Ben Weatherstaff was that in his boyhood he had once run away to sea and had many voyages, so he could reply like a sailor. I am going to try a scientific experiment. Explained the Rajah. When I grow up, I am going to make great scientific discoveries, and I am going to begin now with this experiment. Aye, aye, sir, said Ben Weatherstaff promptly, though this was the first time he had heard of great scientific discoveries. It was the first time Mary had heard of them either, but even at this stage, she had begun to realize that, queer as he was, Colin had read about a great many singular things and was somehow a very convincing sort of boy. When he held up his head and fixed his strange eyes on you, it seemed as if you believed him almost in spite of yourself, though he was only ten years old. Going on eleven? At this moment, he was especially convincing because he suddenly felt the fascination of actually making a sort of speech like a grown up person. The great scientific discoveries I am going to make, he went on, will be about magic. Magic is a great thing, and scarcely anyone knows anything about it except a few people in old books, and marry a little, because she was born in India, where there are fakirs. I believe Dickon knows some magic, but perhaps he doesn't know he knows it. He charms animals and people. I would never have let him come to see me if he had not been an animal charmer. Which is a boy charmer, too, because a boy is an animal. I am sure there is magic in everything, only we have not sense enough to get hold of it and make it do things for us, like electricity and horses and steam. 
This sounded so imposing that Ben Weatherstaff became quite excited and really could not keep still. Aye, aye, sir, he said, and he began to stand up quite straight. When Mary found this garden, it looked quite dead, the orator proceeded. Then something began pushing things up out of the soil and making things out of nothing. One day things weren't there and another they were. I had never watched things before and it made me feel very curious. Scientific people are always curious and I am going to be scientific. I keep saying to myself, what is it? What is it? It's something. It can't be nothing. I don't know its name, so I call it magic. I have never seen the sun rise, but Mary and Dickon have, and from what they tell me, I am sure that is magic too. Something pushes it and draws it. Sometimes, since I've been in the garden, I've looked up and through the trees at the sky, and I have had a strange feeling of being happy, as if something were pushing and drawing in my chest and making me breathe fast. Magic is always pushing and drawing and making things out of nothing. Everything is made out of magic. Leaves and trees, flowers and birds, badges and foxes and squirrels and people. So it must be all around us, in this garden, in all the places. The magic in this garden has made me stand up and know I am going to live to be a man. I am going to make the scientific experiment of trying to get some and put it in myself and make it push and draw and make me strong. I don't know how to do it, but I think that if you keep thinking about it and calling it, perhaps it will come. Perhaps this is the first baby way to get in. When I was going to try to stand the first time, Mary kept saying to herself as fast as she could, You can do it! You can do it! And I did. I had to try myself at the same time, of course, but our magic helped me. And so did Dickens. Every morning and evening and as often in the daytime as I can remember, I am going to say, magic is in me. Magic is making me well. I am going to be as strong as Dickens. As strong as Dickens. And you must all do it too. This is my experiment. Will you help Ben Weatherstaff? Aye, aye, sir said Ben with a staff. Aye, aye. If you keep doing it every day as regularly as soldiers go through drill, we shall see what will happen and find out if the experiment succeeds. You learn things by saying them over and over and thinking about them until they stay in your mind forever. And I think it will be the same with magic. If you keep calling it to come to you and help you, it will get to be part of you and it will stay and do things. I once heard an officer in India tell my mother that there were fakirs who said words over and over thousands of times, said Mary. I've heard Jim Fettleworth's wife say the same thing over thousands of times, calling Jim a drunken brute, said Ben Weatherstaff dryly. Some dollars come of that, sure enough. He gave her a good hiding and one to the blue lion as got drunk as a lord. Colin drew his brows together and thought a few minutes. Then he cheered up. Well, he said, you see, something did come of it. She used the wrong magic until she made him beat her. If she'd used the right magic and said something nice, perhaps he wouldn't have got drunk as a lord, and perhaps, perhaps he might have bought her a new bonnet. 
Ben Weatherstaff chuckled, and there was a shrewd admiration in his little old eyes. "'That a clever lad as well as a straight-legged one, Mr. Colin,' he said. "'Next time I see Bess Fesselworth, I'll give her a bit of a hint to what magic will do for her. She'd be rare and pleased if the scientific experiment worked, and saw a gem.' Dickon had stood listening to the lecture, his round eyes shining with curious delight. Nuts and shell were on his shoulders, and he held a long-eared white rabbit in his arm and stroked and stroked it softly while it laid its ears along its back and enjoyed itself. "'Do you think the experiment will work?' Colin asked him, wondering what he was thinking. He so often wondered what Dickon was thinking when he saw him looking at him or at one of his creatures with his happy wide smile. He smiled now, and his smile was wider than usual. Aye, he answered, that I do. It'll work same as the seeds do when the sun shines on them. It'll work for sure. Shall us begin it now? Colin was delighted, and so was Mary. Fired by recollections of fakirs and devotees and illustrations, Colin suggested that they should all sit cross-legged under the tree, which made a canopy. It will be like sitting in a sort of temple, said Colin. I'm rather tired, and I want to sit down. Eh, said Dickon. Thou mustn't begin by saying thou'rt tired. Thou'lt not spoil the magic. Colin turned and looked at him, into his innocent round eyes. That's true, he said slowly. I must only think of the magic. It all seemed most majestic and mysterious when they sat down in their circle. Ben Weatherstar felt as if he had somehow been led into appearing at a prayer meeting. Ordinarily, he was very fixed in being what he called again prayer meetings, but this being the Raja's affair, he did not resent it and was indeed inclined to be gratified at being called upon to assist. Mistress Mary felt solemnly enraptured. Dickon held his rabbit in his arm, and perhaps he made some charmer's signal no one heard for when he sat down, cross-legged like the rest, the crow, the fox, the squirrels, and the lamb slowly drew near and made part of the circle, settling each into a place of rest, as if of their own desire. "'The creatures have come,' said Colin gravely. "'They want to help us.' Colin looked really quite beautiful, Mary thought. He held his head high, as if he felt like a sort of priest, and his strange eyes had a wonderful look in them. The light shone on him through the tree canopy. "'Now we will begin,' he said. "'Shall we sway backward and forward, Mary, as if we were dervishes?' "'I cannot do no swaying backward and forward,' said Ben Weatherstaff. "'I've got the rheumatics.' "'The magic will take them away,' said Colin in a high priest tone. "'But we won't sway until it has done it. "'We will only chant.' "'I cannot do not chanting,' said Ben Weatherstaff, a trifle testily. "'They turned me out of the church choir the only time I ever tried it.' "'No one smiled. "'They were all too much in earnest. "'Colin's face was not even crossed by a shadow. "'He was thinking only of the magic. "'Then I will chant,' he said. "'And he began.' looking like a strange boy spirit. The sun is shining. The sun is shining. That is the magic. The flowers are growing. The roots are stirring. 
That is the magic. Being alive is the magic. Being strong is the magic. The magic is in me. The magic is in me. It is in me. It is in me. It's in every one of us. It is in Ben Weatherstaff's back. Magic. Magic. Come and help. He said it a great many times. Not a thousand times, but quite a goodly number. Mary listened and tranced. She felt as if it were at once queer and beautiful, and she wanted him to go on and on. Ben Weatherstaff began to feel soothed into a sort of dream, which was quite agreeable. The humming of the bees in the blossoms mingled with the chanting voice, and drowsily melted into a doze. Dickens sat cross-legged with his rabbit asleep on his arm, and a hand resting on the lamb's back. Soot had pushed away a squirrel, and huddled close to him on his shoulder. The grey film dropped over his eyes. At last, Colin stopped. Now I am going to walk round the garden, he announced. Ben Weatherstaff's head had just dropped forward, and he lifted it with a jerk. You have been asleep, said Colin. Not of a sort, mumbled Ben. The sermon was good enough, but I'm bound to get out of the collection. He was not quite awake yet. You're not in a church, said Colin. Not me, said Ben, straightening himself. Who said I were? I heard every bit of it. You said the magic was in my back. The doctor calls it rheumatics. The Rajah waved his hand. That was the wrong magic, he said. You will get better. You have my permission to go to your work. But come back tomorrow. I'd like to see thee walk round the garden, grunted Ben. It was not an unfriendly grunt, but it was a grunt. In fact, being a stubborn old party, and not having entire faith in magic, he had made up his mind that if he were sent away, he would climb his ladder and look over the wall, so that he might be ready to hobble back if there were any stumbling. The Rajah did not object to his staying, and so the procession was formed. It really did look like a procession. Colin was at its head, with Dickon on one side and Mary on the other. Ben Weatherstaff walked behind, and the creatures trailed after them, the lamb and the fox cub keeping close to Dickon, the white rabbit hopping along or stopping to nibble, and Soot following with the solemnity of a person who felt himself in charge. It was a procession which moved slowly, but with dignity. Every few yards it stopped to rest. Colin leaned on Dickon's arm, and privately Ben Weatherstaff kept a sharp lookout. But now and then, Colin took his hand from its support and walked a few steps alone. His head was held up all the time, and he looked very grand. The magic is in me, he kept saying. The magic is making me strong. I can feel it. I can feel it. It seemed very certain that something was upholding and uplifting him. He sat on the seat in the alcoves, and once or twice he sat down on the grass, and several times he paused in the path and leaned on Dickon, but he would not give up until he had gone all round the garden. When he returned to the canopy tree, his cheeks were flushed, and he looked triumphant. I did it! The magic worked! he cried. 
That is my first scientific discovery. What would Dr. Craven say? broke out Mary. He won't say anything, Colin answered, because he will not be told. This is to be the biggest secret of all. No one is to know anything about it until I have grown so strong that I can walk and run like any other boy. I shall come here every day in my chair, and I shall be taken back in it. I won't have people whispering and asking me questions, and I won't let my father hear about it until the experiment has quite succeeded. Then sometime when he comes back to Misselthwaite, I shall just walk into his study and say, Here I am. I am like any other boy. I am quite well, and I shall live to be a man. It has been done by a scientific experiment. He will think he is in a dream, cried Mary. He won't believe his eyes. Colin flushed triumphantly. He had made himself believe that he was going to get well, which was really more than half the battle, if he had been aware of it. And the thought which stimulated him more than any other was this imagining what his father would look like when he saw that he had a son who was as straight and strong as other father's sons. One of his darkest miseries in the unhealthy, morbid past days had been his hatred of being a sickly, weak-backed boy whose father was afraid to look at him. He'll be obliged to believe them, he said. One of the things I am going to do, after the magic works, and before I begin to make scientific discoveries, is to be an athlete. We shall have thee taken to boxing in a week or so, said Ben Weatherstaff. That'll end with winning the belt and being champion prize-fighter of all England. Colin fixed his eyes on him sternly. Weatherstaff, he said, that is disrespectful. You must not take liberties because you are in the secret. However much the magic works, I shall not be a prize-fighter. I shall be a scientific discoverer. Ah, ax pardon, ax pardon, sir, answered Ben, touching his forehead in salute. I ought to have said it wasn't a joking matter, but his eyes twinkled and secretly he was immensely pleased. He really did not mind being snubbed, since the snubbing meant that the lad was gaining strength and spirit. Chapter 24 Let Them Laugh The secret garden was not the only one Dickon worked in. Round the cottage on the moor there was a piece of ground enclosed by a low wall of rough stones. Early in the morning, and late in the fading twilight, and in all the days Colin and Mary did not see him, Dickon worked there planting or tending potatoes, and cabbages, turnips, and carrots, and herbs for his mother. In the company of his creatures he did wonders there, and was never tired of doing them, it seemed. When he dug or weeded, he whistled or sang bits of Yorkshire Moor songs, or talked to Soot or Captain or the brothers and sisters he had taught to help him. "'We'd never got on as comfortable as we do,' Mrs. Sowerby said, "'if it wasn't for Dickens' garden. Anything'll go for him. His taters and cabbages and twice the size of anyone else's, and they've got a flavour with him as nobody has.' When she found a moment to spare, she liked to go out and talk to him. After supper, there was still a long, clear twilight to work in, and that was her quiet time. She could sit upon the low, rough wall and look on and hear stories of the day. She loved this time. There were not only vegetables in this garden. Dickon had bought penny packages of flower seeds now and then, 
and sown bright, sweet-scented things among gooseberry bushes and even cabbages, and he grew borders of mignonette and pinks and pansies, and things whose seeds he could save year after year, or whose roots would bloom each spring and spread in time into fine clumps. The low wall was one of the prettiest things in Yorkshire, because they had tucked between moorland foxglove and ferns and rockcress and hedgegrove flowers into every crevice, until only here and there glimpses of the stones were to be seen. All's a chap got to do to make em thrive, mother, he would say, is to be friends with them for sure. They're just like the creatures. If they're thirsty, give em drink, and if they're hungry, give them a bit of food. They want to live same as we do. If they died, I should feel as if I'd been a bad lad and somehow treated them heartless. It was in these twilight hours that Mrs. Sowerby heard of all that happened at Misselwaite Manor. At first she was only told that Mr. Colin had taken a fancy to going out into the grounds with Miss Mary and that it was doing her good. But it was not long before it was agreed between the two children that Dickens' mother might come into the secret. Somehow it was not doubted that she was safe for sure. So one beautiful still evening, Dickon told the whole story, with all the thrilling details of the buried key, and the robin, and the grey haze which had seemed like deadness, and the secret Mistress Mary had planned never to reveal. The coming of Dickon, and how it had been told to him, the doubt of Mr. Colin, and the final drama of his introduction to the hidden domain, combined with the incident of Ben Weatherstaff's angry face peering over the wall, and Mr. Colin's sudden indignant strength, made Mrs. Sowerby's nice-looking face quite change colour several times. "'My word!' she said. "'It was a good thing that little lass came to the manor.' It's been the making of her and the saving of him, standing on his feet, and us all thinking he was a poor half-witted lad with not a straight bone in him. She asked a great many questions, and her blue eyes were full of deep thinking. What do they make of it at the manor, him being so well and cheerful and never complain? She inquired. They don't know what to make of it, answered Dickon. Every day as comes round his face looks different. It's filling out and doesn't look so sharp and the waxy colour is going. But he has to do his bit of complaining, with a highly entertained grin. What for, a mercy name? asked Mrs. Sowerby. Dickon chuckled. <laughs> he does it to keep them from guessing what's happened. If the doctor knew he'd found out, he could stand on his feet and he'd likely write and tell Mr. Craven. Mr. Craven saving a secret to tell himself. He's going to practice his magic on his legs every day till his father comes back, and then he's going to march into his room and show him he's straight as other lads. But him and Miss Mary thinks it's best plan to do it a bit of groaning and fretting now and then to throw folk off the scent. Mrs. Sowerby was laughing a low, comfortable laugh long before he had finished his last sentence. <laughs> she said. That pays over drawing themselves, I'll warrant. They'll get a good bit of acting out of it, and there's nothing children likes as play acting. Let's hear what they do, Dickon lad. Dickon stopped weeding and sat upon his heels to tell her. His eyes were twinkling with fun. Mr. Colin is carried away to his chair every time he goes out, he explained, and he flies out at John the footman for not carrying him careful enough. 
He makes himself as helpless looking as he can and never lifts his head until he's out of sight of the house. Annie grunts and frets a good bit when he's been settled into his chair. Him and Miss Mary's both got to enjoying it, and when he groans and complains, she'll say, Poor Colin, does it hurt you so much? Are you so weak as that, poor Colin? But the trouble is that sometimes they can scarce keep from bursting and laughing. When we get safe into the garden, they laugh till they have no breath left to laugh with, and they have to snuff their faces into Mr. Colin's cushions to keep the gardeners from hearing and if any of them's about. The more they laugh, the better for him, said Mrs. Sowerby, still laughing herself. Good healthy child laughing better than pills any day of the year. That pair'll plump em up for sure. They are plumping up, said Dickon. They're that hungry they don't know how to get enough to eat without making talk. Mr. Cullen says if he keeps sending for more food, they won't believe he's an invalid at all. Miss Mary says she'll let him eat her share, but he says that if she goes hungry, she'll get thin, and they mun both get fat at once. Mrs. Sowerby laughed so heartily at the revelation of this difficulty that she quite rocked backward and forward in her blue cloak, and Dickon laughed with her. "'I'll tell thee what, lad,' Mrs. Sowerby said when she could speak. "'I've thought of a way to help him. "'When thou goes to him in the mornings, "'thou shalt take a pail of good new milk, "'and I'll bake him a crusty cottage loaf "'or some bond with currants in him, "'same as your children like. "'Nothing so good as fresh milk and bread. "'Then they could take off the edge of their hunger "'while they were in the garden, "'and the fine food they get indoors "'would polish up the corners.' "'Eh, hey, mother,' said Dickon admiringly, "'what a wonder thou'rt! "'Thou always sees a way out of things. "'There was quite an apother yesterday. "'They didn't see how they was to manage without ordering up some food. "'They felt that empty inside. "'There two young uns growing fast, "'and hell's coming back to both of them. "'Children like that feels like young wolves "'and food's flesh and blood to them, said Mrs. Sowerby. Then she smiles Dickens' own curving smile. Eh, but they're enjoying themselves for sure, she said. She was quite right. The comfortable, wonderful mother creature, and she had never been more so than when she had said their play-acting would be their joy. Colin and Mary found it one of the most thrilling sources of entertainment. The idea of protecting themselves from suspicion had been unconsciously suggested to them first by the puzzled nurse and then by Dr. Craven himself. "'Your appetite is approving very much, Master Colin,' the nurse had said one day. "'You used to eat nothing, and so many things disagreed with you.' "'Nothing disagrees with me now,' replied Colin. And then, seeing the nurse looking at him curiously, he suddenly remembered that perhaps he ought not to appear too well just yet. At least, things don't so often disagree with me. It's the fresh air. Perhaps it is, said the nurse, still looking at him with a mystified expression. But I must talk to Dr. Craven about it. How she stared at you, said Mary when she went away. "'as if she thought there must be something to find out.' "'I won't have her finding out things,' said Colin. "'No one must begin to find out yet.' "'When Dr Craven came that morning, he seemed puzzled also. "'He asked a number of questions to Colin's great annoyance. "'You stay out in the garden a great deal,' he suggested. "'Where do you go?' "'Colin put on his favourite air of dignified indifference to opinion.' 
I will not let anyone know where I go, he answered. I go to a place I like. Everyone has orders to keep out of the way. I won't be watched and stared at. You know that. You seem to be out all day, but I do not think it has done you harm. I do not think so. The nurse says that you can eat much more than you ever have done before. Perhaps, said Colin, prompted by a sudden inspiration. Perhaps it is an unnatural appetite. I do not think so, as your food seems to agree with you, said Dr. Craven. You are gaining flesh rapidly, and your colour is better. Perhaps I am bloated and feverish, said Colin, assuming a discouraging air of gloom. People who are not going to live are often different. Dr. Craven shook his head. He was holding Colin's wrist, and he pushed up his sleeve and felt his arm. You are not feverish? he said thoughtfully, and such flesh as you have gained is healthy. If you can keep this up, my boy, we need not talk of dying. Your father will be happy to hear of this remarkable improvement. I won't have him told, Colin broke forth fiercely. It will only disappoint him if I get worse again, and I may get worse this very night. I might have a raging fever. I feel as if I might be beginning to have one now. I won't have letters written to my father. I won't. I won't! You are making me angry, and you know that is bad for me. I feel hot already. I hate being written about and being talked over as much as I hate being stared at. Hush, my boy, Dr. Craven soothed him. Nothing shall be written without your permission. You are too sensitive about things. You must not undo the good which has been done. He said no more about writing to Mr. Craven, and when he saw the nurse, he privately warned her that such a possibility must not be mentioned to the patient. The boy is extraordinarily bitter, he said. His advance seems almost abnormal, but of course he is doing now of his own free will what we could not make him do before. Still, he excites himself very easily, and nothing must be said to irritate him. Mary and Colin were much alarmed and talked together anxiously. From this time dated the plan of play-acting. I may be obliged to have a tantrum, said Colin regretfully. I don't want to have one, and I'm not miserable enough now to work myself into a big one. Perhaps I couldn't have one at all. That lump doesn't come in my throat now, and I keep thinking of nice things instead of horrible ones. But if they talk about writing to my father, I shall have to do something. He made up his mind to eat less, but unfortunately it was not possible to carry out this brilliant idea when he wakened each morning with an amazing appetite, and the table near his sofa was set with a breakfast of homemade bread and fresh butter, snow-white eggs, raspberry jam, and clotted cream. Mary always breakfasted with him, and when they found themselves at the table, particularly if they were delicate slices of sizzling ham sending forth tempting odours from under a hot silver cover, they would look into each other's eyes in desperation. I think we shall have to eat it all this morning, Mary. Colin always ended by saying, we can send away some of the lunch and a great deal of the dinner. But they never found they could send away anything, and the highly polished condition of the empty plates returned to the pantry awakened much comment. I do wish, 
Colin would say also. I do wish the slices of ham were thicker, and one muffin each is not enough for anyone. It's enough for a person who's going to die, answered Mary when first she heard this, but it's not enough for a person who's going to live. I sometimes feel as if I could eat three when those nice fresh heather and gorse smells from the moor come pouring in at the open window. The morning that Dickon, after they had been enjoying themselves in their garden for about two hours, went behind a big rose bush and brought forth two tin pails and revealed that one was full of rich new milk with cream on the top of it and that the other held cottage-made currant buns folded in a clean blue and white napkin, buns so carefully tucked in that they were still hot. There was a riot of surprised joyfulness. What a wonderful thing for Mrs. Sowerby to think of! What a kind, clever woman she must be! How good the buns were! And what delicious fresh milk! Magic is in her, just as it is in Dickon, said Colin. It makes her think of ways to do things, nice things. She is a magic person. Tell her we are grateful, Dickon, extremely grateful. He was given to using rather grown-up phrases at times. He enjoyed them. He liked this so much that he improved upon it. Tell her she has been most bounteous and our gratitude is extreme. And then, forgetting his grandeur, he fell to and stuffed himself with buns and drank milk out of the parley in copious draughts, in the manner of any hungry little boy who had been taking unusual exercise and breathing in moorland air, and whose breakfast was more than two hours behind him. This was the beginning of many agreeable incidents of the same kind. They actually awoke to the fact that as Mrs. Sowerby had fourteen people to provide food for, she might not have enough to satisfy two extra appetites every day. So they asked her to let them send some of their siblings to buy things. Dickon made the stimulating discovery that in the wood in the park outside the garden where Mary had first found him piping to the wild creatures there, there was a deep little hollow where you could build a sort of tiny oven with stones and roast potatoes and eggs in it. Roasted eggs were a previously unknown luxury, and very hot potatoes with salt and fresh butter in them were fit for a woodland king, besides being deliciously satisfying. You could buy both potatoes and eggs and eat as many as you liked without feeling as if you were taking food out of the mouths of fourteen people. Every beautiful morning, the magic was worked by the mystic circle under the plum tree, which provided a canopy of thickening green leaves after its brief blossom line was ended. After the ceremony, Colin always took his walking exercise, and throughout the day he exercised his newly found power at intervals. Each day he grew stronger and could walk more steadily and cover more ground and each day his belief in the magic grew stronger, as well at night. He tried one experiment after another, as he felt himself gaining strength, and it was Dickon who showed him the best things of all. Yesterday, he said one morning after an absence, I went to Thwaite for mother, and near the blue car inn, I seed Bob Hareworth. He's the strongest chap on the moor. He's the champion wrestler, and he can jump higher than any other chap and throw the hammer farther. He's gone all the way to Scotland for the sport some years. He's knowed me ever since I was little, and only bears a friendly sort, and I asked him some questions. 
the gentry calls him an athlete, and I thought to them, Mr. Colin, and I says, how does I make thy muscles stick out to the way, Bob? Did thou do anything extra to make thyself so strong? And he says, well, yes, lad, I did. A strong man in a show that came to the thwaite once showed me how to exercise my arms and legs and every muscle in my body. And I says, could a delicate chap make himself stronger with him, Bob? And he laughed and says, art that the delicate chap? And I says, no, but I knows a young gentleman that's getting well of a long illness and I wished I knowed some of the tricks to help him about. I didn't say no names and he didn't ask none. He's friendly, Sam, and I said, and he stood up and showed me good-natured like, and I imitated what he did till I knowed it by heart. Colin had been listening excitedly. Can you show me? he cried. Will you? Aye, to be sure, Dickon answered, getting up. But he says thou mun do gentle at first, and be careful not to tire thyself. Rest in between times, and take deep breaths, and don't overdo. I'll be careful, said Colin. Show me. Show me. Dickon, you are the most magic boy in the world. Dickon stood up on the grass and slowly went through a carefully practical but simple series of muscle exercises. Colin watched them with widening eyes. He could do a few while he was sitting down. Presently, he did a few gently while he stood upon his already steadied feet. Mary began to do them also. Soot, who was watching the performance, became much disturbed and left his branch and hopped about restlessly because he could not do them too. From that time, the exercises were part of the day's duties as much as the magic was. It became possible for both Colin and Mary to do more of them each time they tried, and such appetites were the results that but for the basket Dickon put down behind the bus each morning when he arrived, they would have been lost. But the little oven in the hollow and Mrs. Sowerby's bounties were so satisfying that Mrs. Medlock and the nurse and Dr. Craven became mystified again. You can trifle with your breakfast and seem to disdain your dinner if you are full to the brim with roasted eggs and potatoes and richly froth do milk and oat cakes and buns and heather honey and clotted cream. They are eating next to nothing said the nurse. They'll die of starvation if they can't be persuaded to take some nourishment. And yet, see how they look. Look! exclaimed Mrs. Medlock indignantly. Eh! I moither to death with them. They're a pair of young satans. Bursting their jackets one day, and the next turning up their noses as the best meals cook can tempt them with. Not a mouthful of that lovely young fowl and bread sauce did they set a fork into yesterday, and the poor woman fair invented a pudding for them, and back it sent. She almost cried. She's afraid she'll be blamed if they starve themselves into their graves. Dr. Craven came and looked at Colin long and carefully. He wore an extremely worried expression when the nurse talked to him and showed him the almost untouched tray of breakfast she had saved for him to look at. But it was even more worried when he sat down by Colin's sofa and examined him. He had been called to London on business and had not seen the boy for nearly two weeks. When young things begin to gain health, they gain it rapidly. The waxen tinge had left. Colin's skin and a warm rose showed through it. His beautiful eyes were clear, and the hollows under them and in his cheeks and temples had filled out. 
His once dark, heavy locks had begun to look as if they had sprang healthily from his forehead and were soft and warm with life. His lips were fuller and of a normal colour. In fact, as an imitation of a boy who was a confirmed invalid, he was a disgraceful sight. Dr. Craven held his chin in his hand and thought him over. "'I am sorry to hear that you do not eat anything,' he said. "'That will not do.' You will lose all you have gained, and you have gained amazingly. You ate so well a short time ago. I told you it was an unnatural appetite, answered Colin. Mary was sitting on her stool nearby, and she suddenly made a very queer sound, which she tried so violently to repress that she ended by almost choking. What is the matter? said Dr. Craven, turning to look at her. Mary became quite severe in her manner. It was something between a sneeze and a cough, she replied with reproachful dignity, and it got in my throat. But, she said afterward to Colin, I couldn't stop myself. It just burst out because all at once I couldn't help remembering that last big potato you ate and the way your mouth stretched when you bit through that thick lovely crust with jam and clotted cream on it. Is there any way in which those children can get food secretly? Dr. Craven inquired of Mrs. Medlock. "'There's no way unless they dig it out of the earth or pick it off the trees,' Mrs. Medlock answered. "'They stay out in their grounds all day and see no one but each other. And if they want anything different to eat from what's sent up to them, they need only ask for it.' "'Well,' said Dr. Craven, "'so long as going without food agrees with them, we need not disturb ourselves. The boy is a new preacher.' "'So is the girl,' said Mrs. Medlock. "'She's begun to be downright pretty since she's filled out and lost her ugly little sour look. "'Her hair's grown thick and healthy-looking, and she's got a bright colour. "'The glummest, ill-natured little thing she used to be, "'and now her and Master Colin laugh together like a pair of crazy young ones. "'Perhaps they're growing fat on that.' "'Perhaps they are,' said Dr. Craven.' Let them laugh. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. I really appreciate everyone who listens and everyone who shares the podcast. Uh, yeah, tons of bonus content here. Be sure to check out Nikki's links. They're going to be in the show notes down below. Check out the other work that she is doing and send some love her way. Thank you so much uh, to Nikki again for just her generosity. I mean, she put so much time and effort into this and it's just, it's coming out great. So I hope you guys are enjoying it, enjoying all the bonus content. Uh, like I said, we'll be back on Sunday with our normally scheduled episode of Emma. So stay tuned for that and yeah in the meantime enjoy all this awesomeness thanks for listening guys remember to share the show with somebody that you know who might enjoy a free audiobook